Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. We're glad that you're here. I don't know if I have any more sound than our singer, our speaker hat. Will you come to the fountain free? Well, I was going to preach the song. Will you? Will you come then? It's for you. It's for me. Thirsty soul. Romans chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. Good evening, everyone. How are you? All right. That was resounding and overwhelming. Hey, welcome back. It's good to see y'all. Romans chapter 4, we had made it down to about verse number 5, and of course you know we have to review, so here we go. What are we talking about? Let's keep in mind and remind ourselves that Paul is building his argumentation. He's making a case. If he, he would be a great lawyer, he has laid a lot of groundwork in chapters 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and he is honing in now. He is sharpening the the argumentation, he's really drawing the fine point, and he calls upon, if you will, a couple of witnesses, and uh, they're going to corroborate the points that he has already made. You'll recall that we have been talking about the Jew and Gentile, and as you're reading through this book, and I suppose on some level every book, please appreciate the fact that the real problem here is sin. Don't let sin out of your sight. Keep an eye on him. He's the problem. I will talk grace, faith, law, works, and a bunch of things, and you could get sidetracked into thinking, well, that's it right there. No, this is all happening because of sin. Sin is the issue, and sin is why there is a need for justification. The Jews and the Gentiles are under sin. Chapter 3 and verse number 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged, proved, they are both what? Under sin. This is the problem. Gentiles chapter 1, Jews chapter 2. Once you sin, you can't solve the problem. There is no one who can get himself out of sin. Therein lies the issue. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law will simply point out to you that you are in sin. Once you're in sin, you cannot get out. No amount of law-keeping can get you out of sin once you're in. Imagine being in a body of water somewhere in the middle, and you can't swim. What's going to happen to you? You're going to drown. If someone comes by and throws you a lifeline, your work is not saving you. You aren't working your way back to shore. What's happening is you're in that state and God gives you his grace and then God tells you to express your faith by trusting him. You grab the lifeline, he pulls you out safely, he gets you to shore, and now on the shore you say, I'm going to work my way out of that water. You didn't work your way out the water. That's Paul's argumentation. If you're under sin, you have an insurmountable problem you cannot fix. 
and no amount of works is going to get you there, and the law will simply point out that you are there. Which brings us to 3.24 then. How will you get out being justified as a gift? By His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is how and the way you're going to get out. Now, Paul argues this, verse number 28, he repeats it again of chapter 3, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He continues that, and as he builds his case, he calls witnesses to cooperate and say the same thing, and they do, and there are two individuals who testify to the very points that Paul has been making. And so we open up chapter 4 with a question, what then shall we say? Who is the first witness? Abraham knows what I'm saying is true. That would be Paul's position. Who else would know Abraham? Every Jew. What would they think about Abraham? If anybody's ever been justified, it's our father Abraham. In fact, that's what they would say to Jesus. We have a father. Abraham is our father. They would understand Abraham very clearly, and they would agree if anybody was justified, it would be Abraham. And so Paul asked, well, how do you think he got there? What shall we say that our Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And it was credited to him, counted to him, imputed to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is credited. He is credited as righteousness. This is where we ended last week. We pick up right here and beginning, and the second witness is called. Who else would they know and be very fond of? David. And what would they say about David? Again, we might say if anybody was justified, if anybody then was an individual who was justified, David would be such a person. Well, that's great because David would agree with Abraham. And Abraham would agree with Paul. It's faith. And so he says in verse number 6 down to verse number 8, but just as David also speaks, well, who does David speak like? Who is David speaking with? David is speaking the same way as Abraham would speak. These two are in agreement. It's just as David speaks. Well, what does David say? He speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is a quote from the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, look back at Psalm 32. That's where you'll find it. Psalm is credited to David as he's the one being quoted. And in verse 1 and verse 2, you find those words. How blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That last phrase is certainly uh, applicable and a great, great thought with regards to it all. It speaks to the man's heart, speaks to the man's spirit. There is no guile, no room or desire for deceit. 
David speaks what Abraham said, and Abraham lived what Paul is teaching, that a person is justified by faith apart from works. It's significant because Abraham lived before the law of Moses was given, and David lived under the law of Moses, and they both found the same thing, faith which is what we talked about a little bit last week with regards to the Hebrews writer epistle in chapter 11. All of these individuals lived by faith. Hebrews 11 and verse number 13, these all died in faith. David says here that God imputes righteousness. He credits the individuals with righteousness who are of faith. Verse 5, he credited to Abraham, he credited him justification or righteousness. In verse number 6, he credited to David righteousness, both apart from the works of the law, both by faith. The converse of that is he does not count then, he does not credit their sins. He doesn't credit it to them. He doesn't charge it to their account. That's why David says, this man is blessed. Verse number seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds, iniquity, their lawless deeds are sent away. It's a blessing to have your sins sent away. Did he commit them? Yes. By God's grace, by his faith, they've been sent away. Blessed is such an individual. Who is that man? David says he lives under the law. He lives by faith. Blessed man. He goes on to say, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. He won't credit him. Here is an individual who misses the mark. He errs from the path of righteousness, and yet they're covered to conceal, to cover, forgive. What man is this? It's a man of faith. Man of faith who trusts God, God removes his sins, doesn't count them, doesn't credit them to them. In fact, he credits righteousness to the man. This is part of the challenge of even understanding this because where does your mind go immediately from here? Do you have any thoughts from here? Anything spring into your mind? Any questions, any thoughts, any anything? Nothing. Our sanctification. Okay, that's a great word. Are Christians so blessed? Let me ask it that way. Are Christians so blessed? Christians are blessed with having their sins covered, with having their transgressions forgiven. Do Christians know that? They should know that. Do they live the blessed life that would follow that? Why wouldn't they live the blessed life that should follow that? A New Testament could be written. A New Testament could be written. Is it possible that God doesn't credit the sin, but the Christian credits himself or herself with the sin? Now, why would they do that, you suppose? Hard, hard to believe that God will always forgive you. 
Hard to believe God would always forgive you. Lack of faith. Guilt. Lack of knowledge. Doubt. How can we get rid of all that y'all just said? My faith. <laughs> Study the word. Stop and think about it. <laughs> I suppose that'd be a good idea too. Stop sitting. Uh, this. Okay. Can we believe that God is not holding it against us? What would it take to believe that? In whom or in what? That really is the problem we're, we're going to run back into. Because what we're saying through these first four chapters is what got our sins covered, what got our iniquity and transgressions forgiven, what actually did that was God's grace and our belief and trust in him. That's how we got here, okay? Well, if that's how we got here, why would you stop believing? Why would anyone stop believing? Because that's how we got here. It's not works that got us here, is it? Or did I miss the first three chapters? It's not works that got us here. It was faith in him. That's what he keeps saying. By faith, by faith, by faith. Okay, so the faith that moves you to become a Christian, now that you're his child, now that you're in the light, now that you're part of his kingdom, part of his family, why would you, you would have to stop trusting him to do what he said he would do once you got into this position. And that would be a brand new problem you would have. But it's not him. David said he's not counting it. David said he's not keeping a record. David said it's not counted to your charge. Now, the language of David, if, if you would add 1 John 1, 7, you can see why that would be the case, certainly in Christ, with the blood now having been shed ultimately. I should say, and I said it last week, that people could find justification under the law. That's true. David just said it, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, and Paul writes it here, quoting Psalm 32, 1 and 2. But that is in view of Christ coming to die for the sins of the world. It's with that already being assured that they get the credit for that event happening. Does that make sense to you? You understand what I'm saying? This could not happen if Christ doesn't come and die. There, there is no ultimate solution for sin if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. And so they're credited in view of that by their faith. Because Christ will come, Christ will die, and he will uh, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. With that in mind, then, people of faith are credited with righteousness under the systems under which they live. Yes, sir, I saw a hand. Part of my difficulty is because we're short-sighted. It's difficult to, to look past our own 
is it, can I ask, is it because in part we think God responds to us the way we respond to one another? How many times do I have to mess up with you before you say, sir, that was your last time? How many times have you been reminded of past infractions by other people, maybe even dangled and held over you, or maybe brought up after promising to forgive? How many times has that happened to you? Never? That's great if it didn't, but if it did, maybe it contributes. I don't know. But God is not one of us. He's not. And if God says he forgives, you should read Psalm 103 sometime when you get a chance. We don't have time tonight. I need to get back to Romans 4. My plan was to finish the chapter. Let's move on. Verses 9 down to verse number 13. It actually returns back to Abraham after talking about David. The point is these two both agree. Paul asks another question. And there have already been great questions asked. We just said, chapter 3, verse 9, are we better than they? And chapter 3, 29 and, 20, and 30, is he the God of the Jews only? And chapter 3, verse 1, what then about circumcision? What is the advantage? Here then, verse number 9, Paul asks, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now, by we say, I think Paul must be including the Jews. They would say, everybody would agree that Abraham was credited with righteousness. We say that. It sounds like a common expression. Everybody would say it. We say Abraham was credited with righteousness. How then was it credited? Remember, Gentile chapter 1, Jew chapter 3, all men chapter 3, verse 9. He never really strays from that. He returns to it now with the phrase circumcision, uncircumcision. And so he returns to Abraham, and he talks about these two groups of people under those headings. For the, is this blessing then on the circumcised, the Jews? Or is this blessing, the one in verse 6, 7, and 8, or is this blessing of forgiveness also on the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Every Jew would agree with that. So then Paul asked another question. How was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And then he answers, not while circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. What does that mean? It means Abraham was righteous before he had the sign of the covenant. The Jews would point to circumcision as being that which makes us who we are, that which connects us to Abraham. And ultimately, Abraham's descendants is how we get down to the law of Moses under which you had to be circumcised. And so they would say, well, yeah, he was righteous. Of course he was. Paul's question is, but when did he get that way? Did he get that way in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Because if in uncircumcision, then he'd be counted among the Gentiles. 
Paul says he was righteous as a Gentile, if you will, and then given the sign of circumcision after faith. In fact, the reason he was given the sign is because of his righteousness, because of his faith. This is, would be, if you were to go back and read Genesis 15, 16, and 17, is where you will find this transitional period. 15, 6 will say, after looking at the stars and all that God, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's not until chapter 17 that he gets the sign of the covenant of Isaac and circumcision and all of those things. And so Paul's point is, he received this in faith as a Gentile, and that's when he became a Jew. He didn't really become a Jew, but that's the circumcision part comes on this side. He continues, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them, Gentiles. Abraham is the father of all believers. He is the father of the Jews who live by faith. He's the father of the Gentiles who live by faith. What have we been discussing? Chapter 1, Gentiles under sin. Chapter 2, Jews under sin. Chapter 3, 9, all under sin. We're no better than they are. 323, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Is he the God of the Jews only? No. How do you know? Abraham. Abraham received the sign. He, Abraham was credited with righteousness before he was circumcised. So that he could be the father of all Gentiles and Jews who are of faith. Verse number 11, the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham which he had while uncircumcised. If you can go back into your mind and listen to Jesus talk to the Jews in a few instances, you will find this kind of conversation come up. One of those is John chapter 8. You have your Bibles, look over there really quickly. John chapter 8, I don't want to say our Lord was in an argument because I don't know that uh, that would be the case. The conversation uh, certainly got spirited. That's a nice way of saying <laughs> argument. No, they disagreed heavily. And they're disagreeing over this very fact. Who is their father? John chapter 8, verse 37. Well, let's go back up a few verses. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, that's verse 34. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things that you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Notice what the Lord said. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. You'd live like Abraham. Abraham. 
But it is as you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are the doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I perceive forth and came from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my words? What I am saying is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. In order to be a descendant of Abraham, you would have to have the faith of Abraham. On the one hand, they are correct. We are physical descendants of Abraham, which is why Jesus would say, I know you're children of Abraham. He means that I know you're physically descended from Abraham, but that's not the way to be a child of Abraham. The way to be a child of Abraham is to be a, have the faith of Abraham, and you don't have that. And so you're not Abraham's descendants, which is how the Gentiles then get to be Abraham's descendants because he received this in uncircumcision. His faith is what made him righteous. Back to Romans 4. He says in verse number 13, for the promises to Abraham or the promise to Abraham to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Those promises recorded back in Genesis chapter 12 came as a matter of faith, not the law. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. This section here needs to uh, be supplemented by the book of Galatians. If you'll turn to Galatians chapter 3, you're going to find in the book of Galatians much of the same material, maybe argued from sometimes slightly different vantage points, but the, the same material. And one of those points is the one he just made, that this happened before the law. Uh, all of those who are of the law can't be the heirs because this was done before the law in the promises that were given. The promises are given in Genesis 12. The law is given in Exodus 20. In, Gen in Galatians chapter 3, the brethren are being bothered, agitated, the scriptures are being perverted. The Gentiles are now contemplating leaving Christ and going back to Moses or going over to become circumcised and live like the Jews. And Paul is arguing to both sides the exact same thing. That would be a terrible decision. So we drop in here in Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse number 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham to be the, the believer, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. It's written, curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, who practices them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone who hangs on the tree in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. 
Well, in verse number 12, what covenant, verse number 15, what covenant is he talking about? There's a covenant that's been made. Which one? That covenant is Genesis chapter 12. The promises to Abraham has been made. And that covenant God made with Abraham comes before God makes a covenant with Israel. And this covenant cannot be nullified because of the existence of this covenant. You can't take away the promises because you've given, given the law. In fact, we don't typically say it in these words. We typically say that we have an old covenant and a new covenant, and we say that because it's biblical. That's how the Bible talks about it. Hebrews chapter 8 and other passages, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Jeremiah prophesied the same thing. So that's how we talk about it. But here, Scripture talks about the fact that the promises to Abraham is a covenant. And it actually supersedes the law of Moses. It's, it's that the, the covenant with Abraham that includes all nations was first. And then came the law of Moses. It serves a different purpose entirely, but it's not to eliminate this covenant. In fact, he says this covenant's already been ratified. And when a covenant has been ratified, you don't add to it or take away from it. Let's read a few more passages. He says in verse number 16, now the promises, that's the covenant, were spoken to Abraham in his, and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Note the end of this chapter. We just don't have time to keep reading. Look at verse number 27. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. Well, who does that include? It includes all nations. In Christ. Paul is arguing that similarly, slightly different language, but back in Romans chapter 4, that's what he's arguing. That it's a faith, and that faith was credited to him while in uncircumcision before there ever was a future law given. Verse number 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Hopefully you're seeing two different streams of people and two different streams of thought. There is the Gentile uncircumcision. There is the Jew circumcised. The Jews have an advantage because they are God's chosen special people. They do have the law. They do have every advantage. But the end goal, that place of righteousness, that place is one and the same. Later in this book, Paul will refer to the Jews as the natural branches. 
He will refer to the Gentiles as a wild olive tree that's been grafted in. Ultimately, it was these promises that included the Gentiles. We read about the Gentiles. Chapter 1, God gave them up, gave them up, gave them up. These people, the Jews, are the ones who bore, if you will, the heat of the day. They were the ones who ultimately the Messiah came through. And so all of that language and all of Paul's angst and pain is that largely they are now missing out on what was the ultimate expression of all of that, and that was Jesus. And so he's arguing vehemently to try to help them understand the need for faith, the need to get there, the need for Christ. Don't you miss out on Jesus. That's ultimately what he keeps saying. But these people over here were included in the promises. We continue. With regards to Abraham in verse number 18 or verse number 17, as uh, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. This is Genesis uh, 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 17, one of the things you'll find is that's exactly what God is doing. He is talking about Abraham's future life in the past tense. Abraham in Genesis 17 doesn't even have a son, not a single one. And God will say, I've made you a father of many nations. It's already done. I've already done it. I have made, it's this that Abraham believes. Abraham believed God. Well, God said, I'm going to give you a son. Did he have a son? He did not have a son. Genesis 12, the promise is made. 13, he doesn't have a son. 14, he doesn't have a son. 15, he doesn't have a son. 16, when you get to chapter 16, it'll say he's been in the land 10 years. Maybe Sarah gets a little bit nervous. 10 years have elapsed, still no son. And then 17, God says, I'm going to do it. In fact, I've already done it. She's going to be called Sarah. She's going to be the mother of me. Nations are going to flow out of you. I only have a son. Abraham in that chapter is going to say, take Eliezer, my, 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 my servant, take him. He's going to say, no, he'll come from your own body. And by the time you get to 17, I believe the verse is 21, God will say, in the set time next year, Sarah will have a son. 18 happens, 19 happens, 20 happens. What happens in 18, 19, 20? 18 and 19 are Sodom and Gomorrah. And 20, a man named Abimelech actually takes Sarah from Abraham. He doesn't even have a wife now. Not only does he have a child, he doesn't even have a wife. Hard to get there from here. But God's will will be done. And so when you find God intervening sometimes in Scripture, it's because the natural order of things have ceased to work according to his plans and purposes. And when those things cease to work naturally, then God intervenes to get things back on track. It's not everybody who got visited for taking somebody else's wife. It seems to be a common practice in the culture. In fact, it's why Abraham was scared in the first place. Tell them you're my sister. Why? Because nobody ever takes another man's wife? No. You tell them you're my sister because they do, and they'll kill me. So tell them you're my sister. Well, they did, 
And the exact thing he didn't want to happen happened. He took her. Oh, she's your sister? Well, that's no problem. Sure, you don't love her enough to keep her. And so he took her. And then the Bible says God visited that man in a dream by night, and he told him, you're a dead man. This didn't happen every day, folks. This was not the norm. The Bible says Abimelech rose early. Wouldn't you set the alarm early on that one? <laughs> Get it going early in the morning? You should read that chapter, though, because it's really interesting stuff, because Abimelech says to God, I did this in the integrity and the innocency of my heart. To which God says, I know. I know you did. And there's a phrase in this verse, I'm not even going to tell it to you. There's a phrase in there I do not think you'll read anywhere else in the Bible. God says something to Abimelech. I don't think you'll read it anywhere else in the Bible. It's really interesting. And I don't know that I have all the explanation for that. Let's continue. Speaking of Abraham's faith, more about Abraham, verse 18 in hope against hope, he believed. As we just talked about, the, the, the age of Abraham, the deadness of his body, the, 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 the life of Sarah, one of the reasons God is waiting is because Abraham's body is not yet dead. If you can take your handmaid and go into Abraham, and he can go into her, and a child can be born, what does that tell us? Abraham is still capable of producing children. That's what that tells us. Well, that's not the plan. And so, God waits. In hope against hope, he believes so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. I want to say it's 18.1 that says Abraham is 99 years old. And in 17 is when God said, in the next year. So by the time Isaac will be born, he'll be 100 years old. That'll mark 25 years since the promises. But now he's dead. In this time, the next year. Abraham's faith, though, is that he believed. He believed against hope. His faith did not become weak. He was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. In light of our previous conversation about belief and our forgiveness and so forth, this is a good verse to end on. Look at the next verse. And being fully assured or persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Would you take that home with you tonight with reference to your sins? Would you take that home with you tonight with reference to everything God has ever promised? Here is a man the appearance of everything before him says what you're believing is not going to happen. You're about 100 years old. Your wife's womb, is, she's past bearing. There's nothing here that says you're going to have a child except one thing. He did. He said he would give us a child. And I believe him. 
it's not much more complicated than that. In fact, it's no more complicated than that. I will add this. What did Abraham believe? He believed the word of God. What should you believe? If God promised it, then you and I should believe he will perform it. That includes every promise he made, and one of those promises, I don't count it against you. It's covered. It's forgiven. You and I should believe that promise. 